This is the location where we read of Noah and the ark and the flood. And for 5,000 years or so, this story has captured uh, the imagination of practically the world. Uh, and rightly so, the story of a universal catastrophe wiped out all humanity except for one man and his family who were saved by the grace of God. And I thought it might be helpful just uh, not to answer out loud or raise any hands, but just invite you to think, what do you think about when you think of Noah and the ark? Now, if, if you grew up in a church and you went to Sunday school uh, as children, you probably got all sorts of memories that begin there with, with maybe uh, the flannel graph, you know, that I like to talk about so much. Um, usually, when we talk about the ark or think about the ark, there's two versions of it. There's the children's version, and that's where you think of the animals in terms of, say, stuffed animals or pictures that you color. And then as an adult, I think we just kind of hang on to that one because we read our Bibles and we use our imaginations, we realize it was a horrifying situation. Except for eight people, everyone and everything dies. And some of the artwork that's been done over the, the centuries is, is just that, horrifying. You wouldn't put that stuff on your coffee table for people to look at. Um, and then on top of all this, with that in your head, Genesis 6 through 9, it covers three chapters, is not primarily a story about Noah as much as it is a story about God, his anger and his judgment. And most of the time we tend to think of God and his anger in two extremes. Both of them would be incorrect. Either God's presented as a benevolent granddaddy who wouldn't hurt anybody and consequently isn't very good at setting anything straight or punishing any sin, or righting any wrong. Or on the other side, you've got perhaps uh, an unhinged despot, uh, the kind of, of God that Richard Dawkins would talk about, who's likely to fly off the handle at any moment because he lives angry at man constantly. Neither one of, of those are correct. We're going to see from this passage this morning uh, divine judgment, but divine grace as well. The God of the Genesis account is neither simply furious nor only benevolent. He acts to save people out of his own wrath as he judges sin. Now that's a complicated thing and, and we'll take the time today to think it through to conclusion. But the waters that drowned the human race were also the waters that floated the ark that saved Noah and his family. Just sit one afternoon under the trees and think that through. So basically, if God saves anyone, he saves them from himself. That's who's saving God in this story. Uh, Noah's not saved because he flees from God's anger, but because he trusts God's word in the middle of his anger, builds the boat, and God saves him. So it's God whom we fear, his anger at our rebellion, but it's also in God we hope because of his promise of rescue. So we're going to cover about two... And a quarter or two and a half or somewhere around there's worth of Scripture today. That's a lot of reading. But I'll make you a deal. We'll read through it only because it's inspired and this message is not. 
At the end of the day, we want to cover the important stuff, right? What I say in explanation is far less important than what this says from Scripture. So we'll break it into three sections. We'll start with uh, the rest of Genesis 6. I'll pray. We'll go through that. Then we'll read 7, and then we'll work on into 8. And uh, I will try to speak quickly. If you can listen quickly, and we'll see how it goes. How about that? Verse 9, Genesis 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself... An ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in the side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of all sorts shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for this that we've just read, as well as what we'll read here in a few moments. And we ask, as always, to be our teacher. May we be your student. May you supernaturally, through the promise of the Holy Spirit, break in on our thinking. And Lord, would you change us to make us more like you, less like ourselves. Lord, continue to sanctify those you've redeemed, that you will ultimately glorify Lord, we thank you for this space and time. May we make full use of it. In your name, amen. Well, right out of the gate, and the way we'll we'll go about this is just read some and then go through some of the things that we saw. We can only go but so deep. But what we saw when we started, uh, these are the generations of Noah. So we've got another genealogy, though this one has descriptions of the ark, and it'll get back to who begat who. When this narrative is over, but uh, the generations of Noah, we saw the generations of Adam. We're told again that Noah was righteous and walked with God. Uh, remember, Noah found favor because he trusted God. It wasn't that God was just looking down and, oh, there's an outlier. The whole world is wicked, and that one's got a clean shirt. That wasn't it. God chose him, had favor on him, and in response to the grace, Noah acted in obedience. We read that through the Hebrews account. We also saw in what we just read a restatement of God's determination to destroy all life. 
all life on the earth because of, these are added words, corruption and violence. So we've heard about it being wicked, but corruption carries the idea of rot and violence. Well, we know what that is. No one likes to have any active violence done on themselves. And God takes sin seriously. That, that's the point clearly made in what we just read. He can't let it go. He can't sweep it under the rug. It's an offense to his holiness. It cannot stand. It must be dealt with. So Noah is to make a boat. He's going to be saved, and the, the boat, the ark, is how he's going to do it. And there's specific instructions by God on how to carry it out. So it's a big boat. Uh, you might have a note in your Bible, sometimes it's, it's at the bottom, but it would describe a cubit, that's the uh, standard of measurement in this chapter, uh, and as far as we can tell, it's about 18 inches. So we've let the scholars do some of the math for us, and you'll find different scholars may use slightly differing math based on uh, this or that, but that would make the ark at least 450 feet long. For reference point, the football field with its end zones is, uh, what, 100 yards and then 10 yards and 10 yards. So that's, what, 360 feet or so. That's still shorter than this ark would have been. So if you sat the ark down in one of these domes, uh, it would get into people's seats, too. Uh, it's big. Now, um, I did some other, just thinking through this. This would work out to somewhere around 95,000 square feet of deck space, if you count those dimensions and then three levels. Now, that's not quite as long or as tall as the USS North Carolina down in Wilmington, if you've been to the battleship. But I found it interesting that though it's 700 and some feet long, uh, the ark would actually have a greater displacement, being shaped rectangularly as it was. So it would, it would displace more ocean when you sat it in the water than the battleship would. Now, it had a roof around it, door on the side, three decks, lots of rooms made out of gopher wood, and we really don't know exactly what species that is. You can't go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and say, I'll be needing some gopher wood. <laughs> um, but it seemed to be an abundant supply because we read about it in, elsewhere. And then waterproofing would take care, uh, be taken care of with pitch. The cargo, knowing his family, of course, every living thing of all flesh. Now that, that, you go from eight people, I can count eight people, and have some fingers left over. But every living thing that had the breath of life in it, that's, that's a big deal. Two by two, male and female, and all the food necessary to keep everything alive. So this is quite an outfit. And then Noah did all this just as God commanded him. We read that at the very end. And one more thing that we overlooked, and that's, on, that's important, but it was on purpose, uh, the word covenant. That's chapter 9. That'll be next week. The agreement between God and the people in this boat and how that has to do with what will be the new world when the old one is no more. All right, let's read some more. This is Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, 
the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 6, Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed upon the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Sounds like a lot of repetition. And there is, especially with the list of animals in their kinds um, and when they got in and how they got in. But there's some new details in 7 that we didn't see in 6. Namely, and I don't remember this from Sunday school, the flannel graph. Two by two, two by two, two by two, except clean animals. Seven pairs. Not just one pair. Seven pairs of clean animals. Now, it's going to be some time. And we have to go on through you know, the Pentateuch uh, into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers to get all the details that have to go with sacrificial system and the dietary laws that differentiate between a clean animal and an unclean animal. Uh, even all the way to the New Testament when Peter and, and, and the blanket comes down and... He's told to kill and eat, and there's barbecue in that blanket. That's an unclean animal, right? Well, this is before all that. 
but we've got what obviously looks like an operative difference between clean and unclean. So it seems God's been telling them things about how he wants them to worship him before we get to how he tells his people, uh, the sons of Abraham, how to worship him. And the answer to the question, why would they need seven pairs? Well, for sacrifices. That's why. And it seems, as we read further, that they're going to eat some of these animals too. Uh, before the flood, it seems, a lot of vegetarians, especially in, in the description of Eden and every green plant for food. Nothing is said about meat until after this. So the cool part about it, that, that there's a, a grander point. And this is whether Noah realizes it or not. But God already has plans for what happens on the other side of the flood. That's what those animals, the first thing he's going to do is sacrifice. So in God's mind, it's probably different than in Noah's mind. Noah's mind, well, so far so good, but I hope this works. Especially as it continues to rain and rain and rain and rain. You've got to wonder if they're all sitting there. All right, it's about... 39 days, 11 hours, and 59 minutes. Is it going to stop? Hmm. He's demonstrating his faith here, but God just, hey, make sure you take seven. Any of you ever ask your parents, why? Why do I need to pack my, my sleeping bag? Because we're running away and we're leaving you with your grandparents. That's why. No, and it's adventure. Sometimes we're just not told why. It, it We'll read later what these are for, but God's got plans. And what about the specific dates mentioned? Did you like that? Nowhere else in Scripture does it go past a year. Here it goes down to month and the day of the month, and then after saying year, month, day, on that very day, what's all the specificity for? Well, it's tricky counting them up because some of them overlap, and it takes some doing to find out which ones are overlapping. But in verse 12, we hear that it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. We'll come back to that uh, tricky math here in a moment. Um, you ever remember it raining a long time? How many of you were here when Fran came visiting? And the aftermath with the power out for so long. Um, I just remember it ruined our vacation. We had to come home early, but we lived in Virginia. It rained, but we didn't lose power I do remember going on vacation once when the kids were younger, and it was, we were there for a week, and it rained six days out of seven. Guess which day it didn't rain? So when you go home, right? There was 18 inches of water standing in the backyard of this house that we rented, and the frogs were trying to, like, redo the, the, the plagues. I mean, they were everywhere. And you couldn't even sleep at night. It was as loud inside the house as it was outside the house. And we remember going to the aquarium. We just, let's just go. We're getting the rain. And when we opened the van doors to try to unbuckle the kids, the mosquitoes were coming into the van so bad that once we finally got them buckled up and the door shut, we had to like deputize the boys with rolled up paper to smack all the, the, the mosquitoes to keep them off of poor little Ben who couldn't defend himself. He's strapped into a seat. That is a bad vacation. This, 40 days and nights of straight rain. And the horror of it is, is the, 
Not just that it rains, period, but that it's not stopping. And would it ever stop as every last piece of high ground disappears, as families try to move up a little further and sacrifice one another to get their children to the top, perhaps. This is horror of horrors as it keeps going and going and going. Um, 40 is the number of trial and testing in the Bible. Can you think of other places where 40 comes up? They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years uh, until they learn to trust the Lord, uh, and then they don't completely. Uh, Goliath mocks the Israelites for 40 days before fighting David. Jesus tempted by the devil while fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Every time that is the period of testing. So let's keep reading, and, and, and we'll conclude our reading here. We'll read down to uh, verse 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a window blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark they had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. He then sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, so she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and set forth the dove. She did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, Everything that moves on the ground went out by families from the ark. I like the word families there. They, I think that'd be a big f- moment in one's family, wouldn't it? Get off this boat. So how long were they in the ark? This is that tricky math because some of it overlaps others. But best we can understand, if we work around the lunar calendar that they would have operated on, Adding up all the time stamps, 
with a full lunar calendar plus a handful of days, that works out on a solar calendar at 365. One whole year. And we've, some of us are already getting exercised over having to spend uh, a whole day with some of our family over Christmas. <laughs> or a whole week is a you know, family vacation. Those aren't the same as not with your siblings and your parents' vacations, right? Everybody knows that, don't they? It's complicated. Yeah, you're all denying it. That's what you're doing. One year together in a boat full of animals. And now the door's open. And they're walking out. What must that sun have felt like? What about a breath of fresh air? You've been in a box with all the animals in the whole world. And now you get to breathe clean air. Or listen to the sound of the wind blowing through leaves on trees. It it must have absolutely been, you know, uh, the black and white to color for, for, uh, you know, it's just, it's no contest. This must have been amazing. So what are we seeing here? We've read through it all. We've, we've highlighted the main points. So back to that original statement at the beginning. There are two dominant themes here. I don't know that you can find any more dominant themes than the themes of divine judgment and divine grace or salvation. They're both here. They're both at the same time. All of it has to do with the Lord. And you've got one faithful family in response to God's favor. It's clear, if nothing else, divine judgment is what we come across first. It's the one that, that uh, really just smacks one right in the face. It's probably the hardest to swallow as well of all the stories in the Bible. This is the story that's probably criticized most often. And people will be quick to say, well, there are other people on the planet that have flood accounts. Well, yes, not like this one. And it's not a bad thing that there's, what, competition between religious documents dating back in history? No, it's obvious that this happened and that there were more people that knew about it. How that was preserved or how it went along, again, it was a long time ago. But divine judgment, was God really that mad? Was sin really that bad? Did he really hit that reset button such as he did? And did he really save some and and why? These are the same questions we've been asking for a number of weeks now. And we learn in this passage that the flood is not simply a punishment for humans. It is an uncreation of the world. In chapter 1, God begins by dividing the waters to make land. You remember he separated the dry land from the waters. He's making order out of the tohu and bohu, which was without form and void. And God begins to make order out of chaos. This is a reversal of that. Genesis 6, he reverses the order such that land is swallowed up by the chaos chaotic waters, darkness returning to the face of the deep. Why? Well, in verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. We noted how you couldn't say that any more matter-of-factly. There's no way to say it. 
other than that. It's as bad as it could possibly get. And then we had new words to describe it in verse 11 and 12. Corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence. God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now I borrowed this from uh, Kevin DeYoung. Until we understand that sin is an egregious offense against a holy God, the Bible will not make sense to us. The flood makes sense because God is holy. If God is not holy, if sin is not an offense to him, in the dynamic that the Bible describes it, then the flood does not make sense. The, the flood is horror of horrors. But if sin is sin and God is God, the flood is justice, divine judgment. Now, it, it can go on, you know, unless God is unimaginably holy, our sin is breathtakingly offensive to him. If you get those things, a holy God and wicked sinners, the Bible starts to make perfect sense. Without that, all sorts of questions have no answer. The reason why the flood doesn't make sense to modern America or unbelievers is because God isn't God and sin isn't sin. If God is God and sin is sin, the flood makes perfect sense. Unfortunately so, and wondrously so at the same time. So Jesus, when he was on this earth, and this is recorded in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Now this is getting way ahead of ourselves. But by the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus is here, after having spent these millennia with his chosen people and uh, starting out with taking them to the promised land and then uh, the conquest of the land and then the period of the judges, the dark ages of God's people trying to figure out, are we going to listen to the Lord? Are we going to rule ourselves or go with these other folks? And then you've got the period of the kings and then the prophets. And it's as if at some point the Lord just says, you know what? It's obvious. Perhaps now to them that they can't fix this themselves. I'm going to go fix it myself. And that's the Christmas story, and it's complete by the Easter story. But Jesus is saying here, the flood, as horrible as it was, did not end sin. Noah, his wife, his three boys and their wives packed sin on that ark with everything else. Next week we're going to see something you don't ever see in Sunday school having to do with Noah. Who's going to show us he's quite capable of sin. The man that walked with God. And that though this is a sign of God's judgment and his grace, ultimately it's still all in play. The war continues. The snake crusher hasn't crushed the head of the snake. And the way he says it here, until they shut the door that day, there were people who were still eating, still drinking, still getting married, still doing their thing. And when judgment comes once for all, there'll be people still eating, still drinking, still getting married, still doing their thing. Just like it was when the door was shut and opportunity was lost, there will be a day where a trumpet blows and things will be different. 
So that is divine judgment. Let's look at divine grace right out of here. It's easy to find the first verse of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. I like how he not only remembered the human beings, but the animals. He created those too, displaying his creative handiwork. He knows what he's doing. It's not lost. It's been preserved. And then when the flood recedes, we read of, and God made a wind to blow. Do you remember how in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was moving. The breath of God was moving upon the face of the waters. Same thing. Flood's over. Spirit of God begins to blow on the waters and dry them up. So he's bringing the order back out of the chaos for a second time. The word remembered is to indicate that God keeps his promises. Yes, God takes sin seriously. Yes, he can't let it go. Yes, we have to start with a big God or none of it makes sense. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And then they lived for almost a thousand years. And then there was 120 years, it seems, before the ark door was shut. There's mercy, there's grace, but there's judgment because of evil continually, corrupt and violent. The Lord said, oh, blot them out. So let me see if I can tie the two of these together. Divine judgment and divine grace. We've, we've already said some of these things. But the same waters, again, that drowned the world, anything that had the breath of life in it, floated the ark that saved Noah and his family. Okay? The same voice that said, In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die, is the same voice who said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The same wrath that was poured out during the flood, if not full, was the same wrath that was poured out on the cross, every last drop. The same God who created us for himself is the same God who will die in his humanity to keep us for himself. The point of this passage and the point of your New Testament is that only God can save you from God. You being a sinner. Judgment and grace. Now, if you wonder as to whether or not this is a cold-hearted, unhinged, despotic God, what was the price of reconciliation? His own son. And having died in your place on the cross to exchange your sins for his righteousness, he's then qualified to be the judge of the world at the end of the world. The scene takes place in heaven. And you've got John there writing in Revelation. He's in a dream. And he's weeping because there's no one worthy to open the seals of the judgment. Why in the world would you want to open those seals? It's judgment. It's Armageddon. It's the worst the world has ever seen. Just leave it shut, right? But if there's no judgment, there's no justice. And if there's no justice, there's no holiness. And if there's no 
holiness, there's no grace. This is the way God wrote the story. So as John's weeping, there comes a voice that there is one worthy, a lamb as though it had been slain from the foundations of the world, takes the scroll from the one sitting on the throne as everybody bows down and says, worthy, you're worthy. You're worthy to open it up. The one who can judge the world is the one who's been through the flood. The one who can say, you live and you die, is the one who knows what death tastes like as it was crudely put by that author, at least he had the character to take his own medicine. If you take the book at its word, it's exactly what he did. You can't get any grander of terms than this. There were sinners on the outside of the ark. There were sinners inside the ark. And the only difference was God's grace. question to you this morning is, where are you? Are you inside the ark? Now, that old box, it might be frozen under ice on a mountain, and we find it one day. Or it rotted between now and then, then and now. But this idea of Jesus and a cross, there's your ark. You're with him, you're in. Reject him, you're out. Sinners inside, sinners outside. The difference is God's grace. Last week we sang uh, to wrap up what we learned. This week is no different. In fact, that's the aim. This week, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust him at his word. I think that's, that's Noah here. And that's number 350. We're going to sing, then uh, I'm going to come. I've got an announcement or two. Uh, we'll close in prayer, but before we sing, let me, let me pray just a short prayer to seal this to our hearts. Father in heaven, Lord, again, big themes. Holy God, wicked, sinful men, made in the image of God, worth saving at the cost of of this God's only begotten Son. Lord, for those who haven't heard it this way or maybe are considering such things, Lord, maybe they've heard this so many times they can't count. But Lord, may we not be left without grace. Lord, would you, for your glory, save some. Make them your own. Lord, change their heart. Give them a new one. May they believe in response to your grace. May souls be saved. Lord, use us, however need be, to tell others. And Lord, may your name be magnified. We thank you for this in your holy name. Amen.